1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: A simple and brief question in this podcast. Are we in a new Cold War? And to discuss that, I'm joined by Sergei Radchenko, the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who's written extensively on the Cold War and on nuclear history and Russia and China. And when we talk about the Cold War, Sergei Radchenko, we think about the essential features of it. What were they? The nuclear aspect, the ideological division? How do you see it?
1: The conventional interpretation is that uh, what made the Cold War truly distinct is the competition of ideologies. So communism on part of the Soviet Union and its allies, and democracy and or capitalism on the part of the United States, and that those two countries had very different ideas about modernity, about the future, and without understanding this ideological struggle, it is impossible to understand the Cold War. But my approach is slightly different. I Not that I debunked ideology in my approach. I, I think ideology is very important, but I also see certain other Features uh, of this conflict of the Cold War uh, that uh, stand uh, that stood out back then and still stand out uh, today, and, and allow us to speak uh, about certain continuities between the Cold War and indeed even the post-Cold War. And uh, the two key issues that I would like to highlight here is a um, uh, this this notion of, of struggle for preeminence, struggle for uh, the place, the right to be called number one. This was important. This was certainly important for the Soviet leaders. They wanted to be recognized as uh, as, as as global leaders. You know, as a, as a superpower, and that's that striving for recognition was very much a part of their legitimacy narrative, international and domestic. So that's one. And the other issue that is very important uh, for understanding the Cold War is, of course, the nuclear. Uh, component, nuclear weapons, nuclear revolution that took place in the 1950s changed the character of war and made possible the kind of struggles that then were played out in the what was then called the third world uh, between the uh, two superpowers, and that aspect, by the way, still continues in its relevance today. Because even today, of course, the uh, some of the key great powers still have nuclear weapons, and it's inconceivable to think even today of a direct conflict between them. And I hope we'll avoid that.
2: So it's interesting you talk about striving to be number one as being an essential part of it, because presumably that, yeah, that occurred. That's always occurred, maybe, you know, in the colonial period, all the countries wanted to be the number Absolutely. one.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You're you're then asking what is distinct about the Cold Wars, which you were going to ask. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and you know, and and uh, 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 there is a there is a argument that can be made that, that can say, well, well, you know, the Cold War was just another struggle between great powers. But then somebody could say to this, well, but it wasn't quite the same as previous struggles because before you know let's say during the first world war we had struggle of powers great powers but they did not necessarily have different roads to modernities or different understanding of modernities Uh, whereas during the cold war there was you know particularly universalist uh, ideology that each side had and they were mutually incompatible and so on and so forth. And I would say, yes, yes, of course, this is a distinct element. So we cannot exactly say that the Cold War and what preceded it and what came after it are exactly the same thing. What I'm saying is there are certain continuities and struggle for power is one of them, struggle for recognition as the leader uh, is, is another one of them. I mean, for the Soviets, if you ask, and of course my work has focused primarily on the Soviet and the Chinese side, you know, if, if, if you look at the Soviet side of the story and you ask, what did they want to accomplish for much of the Cold War? The answer, to my, in my opinion, is that they wanted to attain recognition of their greatness, of their international standing. Why was it so important to them well, one of the answers is that it was very important for their legitimacy, their self of legitimacy, sense of legitimacy, because uh, they, they did not have any other sources of legitimacy. Yes, they had the communist dogma, but with time it became more and more stale and you had to rely on recognition by other powers, not least, of course, the United States uh, of Soviet greatness. And that really mattered to them a great deal more, I think, than spreading revolution worldwide or any, anything like that.
2: So that means that things like the space race, I mean, that does help explain why things like the space race, rather than some sort of territorial battle, were so important.
1: Well, yes, space race was very much a question of prestige. And so in my work, I focus on that, I focus on questions of prestige and and why the Soviets were so keen to look Uh, like they were uh, outcompeting the United States in certain areas. I mean, I think the Soviets, Moscow realized for much of the Cold War that actually they were falling behind and that they would not be able to catch up with the United States. But there was a brief moment, I guess around 1957, you know, everybody remembers the Sputnik moment when the Soviets were able to launch the first satellite into space, where it seemed that the Soviets were achieving some kinds of breakthroughs. And of course, uh, to the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, that seemed to indicate the soviet system what was superior but fundamentally what he cared about was recognition of the soviet union as superior recognition of uh the of, of of you know awarding the soviets the prestige that they craved so much but there was a problem and the problem was that there were different audiences that could give that sort of recognition so for example who's recognition did Khrushchev really crave? I think the number one country whose recognition he craved was actually the United States, because he, you know, he understood that the United States was in a position to recognize. You had to be great yourself to recognize somebody else's greatness, right? So uh, he he uh, he Constantly reached out to the United States with, or he really hoped to be, you know, invited uh, to the United States. He met with Eisenhower, was thrilled uh, by that, etc. But then there's a problem here because at the same time, uh, the Soviet Union also uh, craved recognition as the uh, center of the revolutionary world, and I think that's where ideology becomes very important to understand what was actually happening. So you have a different audience. You have the United States; you you want their recognition of, of your country as a rival great power. You also have the the communist world, and you want to be the leaders of the or you want to be recognized as the leaders of the communist world. And there are other pretenders for leadership, like for example the Chinese. And so the policies that you pursue tend to cater to these two audiences. How do you secure American recognition of your you know, equality, of your prestige? Well, perhaps by pursuing reasonable policies and detente and you know, trying to be a reasonable superpower that you can reach agreements with. But how do you, pers- how do you uh, have or gain recognition from the communist world? Perhaps by sponsoring revolutions uh, in the global south. Yeah, perhaps by helping revolutionary movements somewhere, but those two policy aims were often in contradiction, which is why the Soviets found themselves uh, uh, moving to and fro, and uh, their you know their policy lacked coherence often, or they often undermined themselves.
2: And just to sort of pick up on the point you made about the nuclear arsenal, which yeah, the basic point being that you couldn't fight direct wars with the nuclear weapons, you had to fight proxy wars. I'm just wondering whether that was entirely new, or if you go back to the colonial time and the great game between the Russians and the British, that was also quite cat and mouse and avoiding direct confrontation. Are there parallels there?
1: Well, to a certain extent, we had the great game between Russia and the the British Empire in Central Asia, for example, uh, in countries like Afghanistan or over, you know, struggle for influence over countries like Persia at that time. And we're here talking about the 19th century, but it was still it was still conceivable that uh, great powers like Russia and Britain could go to war against one another directly, as we indeed saw right. in the Crimean War. Right. However, with the development of nuclear weapons, this whole idea simply became inconceivable. So the Soviet Union became indestructible, just as the United States was indestructible, and it only could succumb to its own internal pressures. Of course, this is what happened ultimately to the Soviet Union, it fell apart, not because it was threatened by the United States, but because it bankrupted itself or its system was not working, was not delivering for the people and the people simply said enough is enough, right? but it could not be externally destroyed. So this is an interesting element of the Cold War that only became clear during the Cold War and that survived the Cold War. Uh, So this is actually an essential continuity. When people say, well, the Cold War was something entirely different, I say to this, well, wait a second. Actually in that particular element, that element about great powers being essentially indestructible except through internal revolution uh, and internal weakness, that, I think, is, is definitely something that connects us to the Cold War.
2: Yeah. And, and then let's say the Cold War ends 88, 89, and there's a new period, which I wonder where you date it to. I mean, I think we're all in a new situation now after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So would you say that there's a sort of intervening period of 89 to, to this year?
1: Well, okay, so yeah, we had uh, a lot of people say that that now we have we are finally in the post post Cold War. In other words, we had a period of of uh, we had a period of relatively good relationship between Russia and uh, the United States in the 1990s when Russia tried to build and ins- or tried to uh, insert itself in the United States led international order. It is interesting, by the way, now documents are coming uh, through, being declassified on the 1990s, and we can see what the Russian policymakers in the 90s also hoped for and expected. And, 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 and what we can see there is that there's, they still resented, even in the 90s, they still resented what you would call you know, the unilateral world led by the United States. And they still wanted to have some special role in the international Order being an equal partner to the United States, except they didn't have the power. They didn't have the power to do that. But it's remarkable to see how they nurtured those hopes and expectations. They wanted to stand tall and proud, prestigious next to the United States, and they wanted American. They craved American recognition of their greatness, even though there was nothing to recognize. Russia was falling apart. It was poor. It was you know over overrun by criminals and mafia bosses, etc. Uh, uh, but but then already from the 90s, you have a decline in that in that honeymoon period from the mid-90s, obviously with the Russian invasion of Chechnya, that was an important turning point. The enlargement of NATO also contributed to a certain degree. And, and so I don't see a sharp division between Yeltsin, the Yeltsin era and the Putin era. In a sense, some of the things that we saw developed during the Putin era properly began in the Yeltsin era period, i.e. the cooling of relationship between Russia and the United States. And then, of course, things really went downhill after approximately 2007, with Putin increasingly grown resentful, complaining about Russia being sidelined in international politics, complaining about being sort of looked down upon by the United States. So in this sense, uh, yes, the war, Russian invasion of Ukraine was certainly a milestone, but I would say the road towards this confrontation goes back to the 1990s. It, it's, it's, not, it's, not some, you know, it's not like somebody just walked in and turned the lights off. It actually was a slow decline and towards confrontation. That's where we find ourselves. But when today we talk about the Cold War, of course, it's not just Russia that we're talking about and the Russo-American relationship. In fact, if anything, you know, we're looking at a hot war with Russia at the moment, but we're also looking at China and where China is going and whether China is the kind of peer competitor that the Soviet Union was to the United States back uh, during the Cold War.
2: And we'll talk about China uh, as we get towards the end of this podcast. But just on this post-89 period, you, you say that Putin craved recognition as a great power, but he also felt that he was duped, you know, that NATO said it wouldn't expand and it did. How valid is that complaint?
1: Well, so the complaint is not entirely valid, put it this way. Obviously, the story is very complicated. Uh, Putin's complaints relate to a particular episode uh, that historians of the Cold War know and understand fairly well now because of, of the availability of documents, and that is the meeting between Secretary of State Baker and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in uh, February 1990, when they talked about the future of Germany, and of course, you know, obviously, Germany was being East Germany was being always falling apart. It was it was being drawn back to West Germany. And, and Gorbachev really worried about that. And he wasn't sure how to play the whole NATO versus Warsaw Pact situation. Obviously, East Germany was in the Warsaw Pact at that time. And the Americans insisted on united Germany being in NATO. And there was this conversation where, where Baker basically promised to Gorbachev that there would not be in the enlargement of NATO jurisdiction, one inch to the east after re- German reunification. And Gorbachev said, well, yeah, that's, you know, we expect that or something like that, or it's natural. We naturally agree to this. And, and so when Putin complains about this. He draws attention to that particular episode, but also some other episodes that suggested in the early 1990s that NATO would not enlarge some assurances, never written assurances, maybe some spoken comments here and there. But fundamentally, there was no agreement. So there was nothing on paper that would say that NATO was, would not enlarge. And as I talk about, uh, and I talk about this in my book, there was actually no indication that even after the conversation with Baker in February 1990, Gorbachev decided there was a deal between the West and the East. In other words, Gorbachev continued to expect a better bargain, perhaps to keep all of Germany, uh, rather all of Germany out of NATO or, you know, something else. Certainly not the the NATO enlargement scenario that ultimately happened. So he was still, he still was shopping for a better bargain uh, well into the spring of 1990 until perhaps May of 1990, when it became so clear that it's just, you know, that United Germany was going to stay in NATO. And at that point, he was quite desperate and actually applied or asked Baker that the Soviet Union be admitted to NATO, which was an interesting moment. This was in early May 1990. So all of that is merely to say that history is a complicated business. And I don't think that when Putin says, oh, we were promised and then, you know, promises were broken. I don't think that's a valid interpretation of what actually happened. You have to look at the documents. There's some there's some truth to the argument that assurance certain assurances were being made. It was also patently clear that no no agreement was reached, and it's also patently clear that Gorbachev was still shopping for a better deal way past when Putin says assurances were being offered to him.
2: I'd like to pick up on that remarkable moment, as you say, when there was a suggestion that Russia could join NATO. Was that such a ridiculous idea? Do you think the West made a mistake at that time? If you know, Maybe not NATO membership, but at least, as you say, recognizing Russian greatness or you know, its need for recognition and trying to integrate it. And, and, and maybe recent history would be rather different if that had happened.
1: Well, that's a difficult question. You know, the Russians are, of course, suckers for recognition. They want to be recognized. They wanted to be recognized during the Soviet Union for their alleged greatness. They wanted to be recognized after the Soviet collapse for their alleged greatness. And so they, they, they keep being very aggrieved about not having the kind of recognition which they think they deserve and blaming the West for it. And also legitimizing internal domestic repressive policies with reference to, you know, the West's attempts to keep Russia down and and so on and so forth. So there is this good question of what would have happened if Russia was admitted to NATO. In the 1990s, uh, the Russians were desperate to be admitted, uh, reached out to NATO on a number of occasions and uh, asked to be... Allowed in on maybe not, you know, not on on maybe on on kind of the French model. Obviously, France was uh, outside the military structures of NATO at that time. Um, And all of that was basically torpedoed or not even really listened to by American policymakers who were from the mid 1990s quite squarely focused on enlargement uh, into uh, Central Eastern Europe, so namely uh, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary. You know, it's a a difficult... Why do I say it's a difficult question? (laughs) Because NATO is a very successful alliance. It has worked through the Cold War, preserving Western interests, uh, keeping the Soviets at bay, allowing Russia into NATO or the Soviet Union into NATO. would perhaps have ruined the organization or undermined the organization in a very serious way. And I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of, let's say the Russians won the Cold War. Let's say the Russians won the Cold War, NATO was falling apart, Warsaw Pact was a very prestigious organization everybody wanted to be a part of, and suddenly the United States said, oh, please allow us into Warsaw Pact, we want to be part of the Warsaw Pact. You know, would the Soviets have done that? And I would say that they're realists, they never, would have done anything like that. So it's not fair for the Soviets or the Russians to blame the United States for trying to preserve their very successful alliance system, very successful international organization, from being kind of torpedoed from within by the Russians for the sake of unclear future world. On the other hand, given you know, looking in retrospect of the last thirty years and how Russia was simply kind of left out to drift without a purpose. You you sort of ask the question: What could have you know, could we have done something different? I as a Russian, yeah, as a Russian, I would say: Look, the Russians have to take the blame for ninety nine percent of all the problems that they have caused themselves and that they have caused the world, because uh, look, uh, who made Russia poor, who made Russia corrupt, who looted the Russian state, who invaded Chechnya, you know, the Russians did. They did it to themselves. We cannot blame the West for all all of those things, and yet a part of me. It also asks whether perhaps we could have had a different vision from the West, a more welcoming vision. You know, there's an interesting moment in 1962 when Dean Acheson speaks about the British Empire. He says, Well, the British Empire rather great Britain lost its empire but never found a role well of course that's not true Britain did find a role it had a special relationship with the United States it embraced Europe four times it turned out it was firmly embraced by the West part of the West obviously and that made transition easier and you know more possible It it became possible to become a normal state the same thing happened to the French after they lost their empire they found an anchor in Europe the Germans obviously after the Second World War the Japanese the Russians never had anything like that they were just floating out there without a purpose without an ideology not knowing what they wanted to be except that they wanted to be great and wanted to be recognized for something for some kind of greatness desperate to be to to join the prestigious clubs like g7 and nato and actually they did manage to join g7 obviously so that was that shows that clinton was not deaf to their uh please um still could more have been done We will never know. We will never know. We just know where we are today.
2: And when you look at that, finally, on this post-89 period, when you look at it, do you think China, what what role did China play in that period? And was was the thoughts about China affecting Russian and American calculations?
1: In the 90s, China was in a very interesting position because obviously in 1989, there was a crackdown in Tiananmen Square. And after that, relations between China and the West cooled uh, substantial and very dramatically, actually. Now, Western policymakers, starting from the Nixon administration, but certainly through the Carter administration, especially the Carter and the Reagan administration uh, administrations, and indeed Bush himself, I mean, I, I mean, Bush senior, had this interesting idea about China that with time, it would uh, evolve into quasi-democracy because it could pursue economic reform And uh, eventually that economic reform would lead to political reform. And so there was great hope for China. But then 1989 put a sharp end to this hope. And China for a time was quite isolated on the international stage, except for the Soviets. Because it was in 1989, in May 1989, that Mikhail Gorbachev went to Beijing and uh, normalized Sino-Soviet relations that were characterized by a state of bitterness confrontation for the better part of the Cold War since the late 1950s. He normalized those relations with China on the understanding that China was hugely important for the Soviet Union. And indeed, he thought that the fact that uh, China was um, ostracized from the international community as a result of the Tiananmen massacre Uh, actually would play into the Soviet hands. He had an interesting conception. And by the way, very few people know about this because Vorbachev is seen as a guy who kind of uh, allowed the Berlin Wall to, come down and helped end communism in in Eastern Europe and uh, met with Reagan and Reykjavik. Few people understand that actually Gorbachev was also the uh, figure behind Russian-Chinese rapprochement or at that time Sino-Soviet rapprochement. And he also tried to reach out to India and form a kind of a strategic triangle that would be politically directed, I will not necessarily say against the United States, but it was supposed to serve as a counterweight in the global order that Gorbachev was trying to bring about. Gorbachev was not a naive fool. He understood that the Soviets were waning power, so he wanted to create a counterbalance to the United States and to the West more broadly. And uh, China was supposed to play a key role in all of that. But then, of course, the Soviet Union fell apart and then Yeltsin came to the fore. And Yeltsin was, for the first year in office in 1992, he was very pro-Western, looked only to the West, didn't care about China. There were even people in in Yeltsin's entourage who wanted to uh, recognize Taiwan for reasons of democratic sentiment. But then he changed his tune very rapidly. And actually, you can see already from '93 how Yeltsin departed from that idea of just relying on the United States. And if we're talking here about kind of uh, you know the origins of where we are today, we can actually find some of those themes already in the early 1990s. Yeltsin understood that China was going to be an important partner to Russia. He reached out to China. The Chinese understood pragmatically as much as they didn't like Russian democracy and all of that, you know, they understood that. Russia was an important partner, and so there was this period of uh, a close uh, building up a, of a close relationship between President Yeltsin and Jiang Zemin, the Chinese president, in the 90s. So Putin very much inherited this. Putin inherited this, this idea that Russia and China have strategic, common strategic goals, uh, and those goals include being, serving as a counterweight to uh, the Western-led international order.
2: Which takes us forward now to this year and and looking ahead, as our title says, to the future. Let's just deal with Ukraine now. and, and, And I mean, I guess the point is, how do you see it? There'll be a negotiated settlement at some point. There'll be some ongoing territorial dispute.
1: Well, I... Had thought, and you know, I'm not a military analyst, and I have been. I have made all kinds of predictions that have proven to be wrong. As you know, historians are best left to making predictions about the past. Uh, that that's a more reliable. Um, more reliable field, as it were, than making predictions about the future. So I was I first of all, I was surprised by the fact that Russia actually invaded Ukraine, as were many analysts in Moscow at that time. A lot of people thought that it was completely unreasonable. Even in, in, in the what you would call the Moscow blob, people who were part of the think tank community there, you know, people in the foreign ministry, a lot of them thought, oh, this is crazy, this is absolutely crazy. But then Russia invaded Ukraine and uh uh and, and and so this war began that clearly Putin thought was going to be a very short war, but it led to almost a quagmire of some kind and so after a few months of fighting, a lot of people, including myself. Uh, began to suspect that there's going to be, that this war is playing out almost like the Korean War during the Cold War. So the Korean War, um, you had several months of fighting, but then by April, the war obviously broke out in June 1950. But by April 1951, it it seemed clear that that things were just coming to standstill, stalemate. But still it took another two years to to reach an agreement or a temporary ceasefire. You know, I almost began to think in that direction that perhaps Ukraine was quite exhausted despite being Benef- uh, benefit from, from the supply of weapons from, from the West, especially the United States, Russia was quite exhausted in that perhaps there would be some sort of a stalemate and perhaps not a negotiated solution, but at least a ceasefire. However, we have seen in recent uh, weeks and intensification of this war, Ukraine was able to reverse Russian breakthroughs and has been really pushing back against the Russians. The Russians have a low morale. They also have tremendous problems logistically keeping the army in the field, supplying it, and they have a problem with manpower. And that is why Putin finally declared mobilization after waiting for months and months and months and promising there would be no, no mobilization. He realized that there was no other way to to reverse Ukrainian gains or even to just to stop Ukrainian gains. But it is not clear because we don't have the crystal ball. We don't know, despite the chaotic, almost you would call it shambolic Russian mobilization, which clearly shows that the you know, Russian Minister of Defense was not prepared for this sort of this sort of development. We just don't know. Maybe they'll get themselves together and maybe they will be able to put hundreds of thousands of people in the field and perhaps even supply them with weapons and perhaps then provide them with training, although that seems very unlikely. So it is very hard to see ahead and see whether, after all, we'll have some kind of a stalemate or whether the Ukrainians are going to continue pushing forward. And then, of course, dangers of escalation remain. And this is where lessons of the Cold War become very interesting and very relevant, because again, in the last few weeks and months, there has been so much discussion of the danger of uh, Russian use of nuclear weapons, and what to do if, if the Russians decide to do that. What could prevent them from doing from from going nuclear and you know, using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Those are all very interesting questions, and uh, since we don't know what is on Putin's mind, the best roadmap to Russian thinking that we have is perhaps the history of the Cold War, you know, history of uh, of, of Soviet-American confrontation.
2: Well, I, I could see that, but at the same time, would I be right in thinking that the nuclear signaling that has gone on in this Ukraine conflict has been much more explicit than anything in the Cold War? Or is that wrong?
1: Well, I would say it, it's not entirely right. It's not entirely right. And, and, and that is because we can go back to the 1950s, to Nikita Khrushchev, to that moment during the nuclear revolution when Nikita Khrushchev realized the Soviets had in their hands means of enormous destructive power, not just the thermonuclear weapons, the Soviets tested their first thermonuclear properly thermonuclear bomb in 1955, but also the means of their delivery, not just by bombers, but as they discovered in the summer of 1957 when they first successfully tested the intercontinental ballistic missile, by missile to the United States. And it took a few years before their boasting caught up with their capability, uh, or rather the capability caught up with boasting. Uh, But already in 1956, you see Nikita Khrushchev making nuclear threats to resolve the Suez Crisis on his terms. Now we know as historians that uh, the suez crisis was resolved not because nikita khrushchev made nuclear threats but because the united uh, united kingdom ran out of money basically and then there was pressure from the united states uh, that it desist from the military operations in, in in and around suez and then the french also couldn't go along uh, couldn't go uh, alone so they also pulled out but nikita khrushchev learned something entirely different from this whole crisis he realized that actually making nuclear threats works he thought that this was because he threatened to rain Nuclear uh, destruction on England or in the Great on Great Britain and on France, as he did, he did, he wrote those letters uh, threatening this. In 1957, he threatened to destroy Turkey during the 1957 uh, crisis uh, involving Syria. In 1958, he threatened to rain nuclear destruction on the United States as a result of the uh, second, uh, in the context of the second Taiwan Strait crisis. And and then in November 1958, he famously announced Berlin Ultimatum, which rested upon that premise that the Soviets had the nuclear means to force the Americans out of West Berlin. That failed. He did not manage to do that. And then, of course, he ultimately had to build the Berlin Wall. So Khrushchev, played with the nuclear threat with the with nuclear powers or nuclear blackmail for some time. And then all of that changed with the Cuban Missile Crisis. He understood during the missile Cuban Missile Crisis how close he came to actual nuclear war. And after that, for the last two years of his office, he was purged in 1964. He desisted from this. You know, He desisted from that rhetoric. And there was even a period that historians call uh, something that resembled the taunt. And then, of course, we had... Brezhnev, who was also very careful in his rhetoric. So all of that is merely to say that, yes, Putin has been making nuclear threats, but some of that actually parallels long forgotten history of what Nikita Khrushchev was doing in the late
2: 1950s. Let's get on to China and whether the Cold War of the future is between the United States and China. I mean, there are huge differences between the Sino-US relationship now and the Soviet US relationship in the past. But how do you see it?
1: Well, I think there's a major difference here. And this is a, uh, actually this difference should make it make us a little bit worried because the Soviet Union, although it claimed to be a superpower during the Cold War, was actually a broken superpower throughout the Cold War. It was Playing a catch-up game with the United States, but it could not. It could not deliver. It could not economically deliver. Uh, you know, it had to import Western technologies all the time. When it decided that, it, you know, first Khrushchev decided to build communism. in Twenty years proclaimed this was supposed to happen by 1980. But you know, what? What? How was it supposed to work? The Soviets simply did not have the capability. They had declining labor productivity. They had problems with agriculture. They ultimately had to rely on the West to build pipelines so they could export oil and gas, primarily gas, actually, in order to sustain their economy in the 1970s. So the Soviets were, in a sense, a very weak superpower. But China's great power status rests on actual economic performance. Uh, There's R&D, there's a serious military, of course, just as the Soviets had, but there's also the economy, the education, the investment, and so on. So China is is a very, very serious competitor, except, of course, that one parallel between the Soviet Union and China that still remains is that China is run by uh, an authoritarian government, and authoritarian governments, in the Soviet case, just as in the Chinese case, may actually prove not very stable in the end. But this is still to be seen, I think, in the case of, of China.
2: And the ideological element is 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 not really there, I'd have thought, or maybe you think it is, because obviously the, the, the it's lip service to communism now. Uh, but there is an anti-democratic feeling in, in China and a, a feeling that their system is superior to that of the state. So do, do you see it as an ideological battle? Well, and that's a very interesting question
1: and that, again, goes back to what we mean by ideology and, and, and how, ideology, uh, how important is ideology in the making of foreign, foreign policy. You know, there's a, there was an interesting moment in Chinese foreign policy back in the 1950s. In fact, in 1959, Mao Zedong, chairman, chairman of China, Chinese Communist Party at that time, was making a speech. He talked about American recognition of China and he said, well, you know, the Americans do not recognize China. They may not recognize China for five years or for maybe even for, for longer than this. But what we need to do is we need to focus on the building of steel, on, the, on production of steel. Once we reach 600 uh, uh, million tons of steel in production, the Americans will have to recognize us, that's Mao Zedong saying in 1959. Once we reach 600 million tons of steel as our production target, the Americans will have to recognize us. But then he said, even then the Americans may refuse to recognize us, even if we do that. But he said, in this case, who cares? Because we will have proven to the world that we are an actual superpower because we have the economic foundations on which to stand. So even for Mao, the idea there was to prove to the world, to prove to his own people that China could outcompete the United States, outcompete the Soviet Union economically. And this was the basis of his claim to legitimacy, of his claim to greatness. He wanted that kind of recognition. He wanted it very badly. That was, by the way, the reason for the Great Leap Forward, the disastrous policy that led to uh, some say 35 and perhaps more million deaths in China, simply to prove to the world that China could outcompete the world economically, especially outcompete the, the West economically, and of course, the Soviet Union as well. So, all of that is to say is, yeah, uh, ideology, you know, it it was important to China, sure, they had a communist ideology, they talked about world revolution and things like that. But fundamentally, what China wanted during the Cold War was to return to centrality in global politics. What does China want today? To return to centrality in global politics. The means may be different, but the aim is still the same. And uh, today's China is more successful at this task. Then then was Mao Zedong's China, and if you look at China's steel production figure today, you'll see that it's much higher than what Mao Zedong dreamt would be possible in 1959.
2: So, so maybe looking forward, there will be, you know, elements anyway of two cold wars: America and Russia, America and China.
1: Well, I think it's part of the same global alignment, realignment, uh, global confrontation, Uh, Russia and China are aligned, they're not allies, they're they're not allies like during the Cold War, there was a period in the 1950s when when they were actually actual military allies. Today, Russia and China are aligned, not allied, That is to say, they have shared interests, and it seems that their core shared interest is to prevent the United States from effectively dominating the international order. But they also have their various disagreements, and China has its own interests. And we have seen that from the way that they have reacted to this conflict in Ukraine. On the one hand, they have rhetorically supported Russia and blamed NATO. On the other hand, they have also treated very carefully, and uh, in order not to permit their companies from suffering uh, from secondary sanctions uh, imposed by the United States so obviously the world is in the flux with the situation between russia and ukraine is very uncertain the chinese are looking at this situation very very carefully and are playing by the ear if russia is defeated hands down and perhaps you know falls into some kind of domestic uh, chaos uh, maybe even falls apart then uh, the chinese will I think pragmatically accept it. They will pragmatically accept it. Will it that will that be in their interest? I don't think so. I think they're hoping that Russia will somehow pull through and still maintain their uh, influence. At the same time, China is already taking advantage of Russia's weakness in Central Asia. But uh, uh, whatever happens, I think the Chinese have also fully pluck themselves in, into this narrative that uh, the mo- the world is moving towards a bipolar confrontation between China and the United States, that this confrontation is nearly inevitable, it's going to happen, that Russia plays a role in that to a certain extent. That's why Russia needs to be supported. So that, I think, is where the world is developing. It's very interesting because, of course, it's very similar to what, it, it, at least at the at the surface level it 's very similar to what was happening in the late 1940s uh, except the, now that it 's you know china is the great enemy here, and Russia is sort of helping from the sides almost but yet of course, there are differences as well as we have talked about you know differences we have mentioned, including the fact that communism building communism is not on the agenda, uh, and uh, neither China nor Russia have a very coherent systemic ideology that they would present and say, hey, the world follow us because we are trying to change the world in our image. What is their image? Is it tyranny? Is it, you know, is it some kind of a corrupt mafia state like Russia? That's not a very good image. Nobody wants to follow that. So that is a big difference, I think, between the the Cold War, the origins of the Cold War and the origins of the Cold War 2.0 or whatever we are having uh, unfold before our eyes today.
2: And one just last thought to close with: uh, Cold War 3.0, maybe. When you when you think about India and Pakistan, and maybe in the future Israel, Iran, all the elements seem to be there: ideological disputes, maybe you know, in the form of religious disputes, uh, bragging rights to be uh, powerful nations, the nuclear element, using proxies to fight their conflicts. So. There, is, there is something in common, isn't there, in those confrontations and and the original Cold War confrontation.
1: Well, yes, and and also in in those cases that you mentioned, the key element is nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, nuclear weapons, as uh, you know, obviously, uh, in the situation is still developing between Israel and Iran. We don't know how Iran will what sort of nuclear weapons or you no know, nuclear weapon, weapon program they will have in the future. But that you know the. the situation between india and pakistan uh is is uh, uh certainly characterized by the presence of nuclear weapons in the back of of, uh, of of the minds of their leaders, so we have we have uh, so we have that nuclear element, which I think is is a new thing that came with the Cold War and the idea that you should not allow direct confrontation between nuclear powers because it is suicidal, and that of course leads to particular kind of proxy warfare that during the Cold War we saw in Vietnam and Korea and Afghanistan, and that now we arguably are seeing in Ukraine. The danger, of course, is when you have so many mini Cold Wars, is that one of them eventually will turn hot and uh, we will have a nuclear apocalypse in which uh, uh, one or two of those powers, or perhaps the entire world, will go up in flames. And, and so that that makes me very pessimistic as we we'll look to the future. Uh, and, and that is, uh, you know, as a Cold War historian, you kind of have to be pessimistic, because when you look at all the crises that happened during the Cold War and just realize how close we came to self-destruction. You you really form a very deeply pessimistic image of humanity. But there is a positive note. The Cold War, as we knew it, ended in 1989, and the Berlin Wall fell. And there was a glimpse of freedom and a moment of happiness, uh, how, however fleeting it was. And that suggests that people and countries are capable of changing themselves and overcoming their divisions and coming to some sort of Uh, 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 a new status quo. And uh, that is one thing that gives me optimism.
2: Sergei Radchenko, you've given us a very broad sweep. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Owen.